I don't know if we're going to finish John 17 or not. We've only got like seven verses left. But I was uh, in preparation for the message this week, and I'm just going to give you a peek into my study. And and you know me and rabbit trails? No. No. I just, Stacy came up and, and at one point she said, How, how's it going? And I said, I'm just always amazed at what the Lord does. He just kind of taken this message a whole different direction than what I had planned. And uh, I know better than to try to go with what I had planned when that's the case. So here we are. We're going to start out actually in one verse from last week. We're going to briefly cover uh, a few verses from last week again, but spend a lot of time in one. And then we'll get into the Lord willing, the third and final part of this chapter. Uh, we looked at verses 1 through 5. We, we talked about glory a couple of weeks ago and, and where Jesus was praying to the Father. And the only way that Jesus could be glorified is if the Father answered his prayer. And then he would be glorified. And through that, the Father would be glorified as well, that, that they share glory. We talked about that at length. I'm not going to go into it again. And then verses 6 through 19, we looked at last week, where Jesus shifts his prayer. Uh, he's still talking and still, still addressing the Father in this. But now he addresses his own. He talks about his disciples. And he's praying that the Father would have his hand on them going forward. And in a, a sense, he hands them off. Because in his earthly ministry, they, he had been the one with whom they had to do. And he knew that physically he would no longer be available to them. I mean, he would for a short time after the resurrection. But he's essentially petitioning the Father to have his hand on them and to guide them, to wreck them. And, and just a great uh, deal of information we looked at last week. And it's just, I almost feel like it cheapens it to only spend a couple hours on these things. And yet... Uh, we're going to spend some time this morning in this last portion, uh, which is unity. But it's not unity the way that the world looks at unity. I mean, we could all be for a certain football team, and we find out really quickly who's not for that football team. And we could be unified in that. But this isn't a worldly unity that Jesus is talking about. It's something that only comes by his Holy Spirit. And as we look at unity this morning, we're going to look at why he, I mean, he prays for us in this. And he can actually look down through time and pray for all of us. And, and why would he pray? I mean, he could have prayed for a lot of things, folks. He could have prayed that, yeah, that we're all healthy. He could have prayed that, that we're all, you know, just... It, it, you can just fill in the blank. And yet he is so immersed in petitioning the Father for unity for us. Uh, and there's a purpose in it. We're going to look at that as we go this morning. Uh, we're going to look at, we're going to start in verses 16 through 19 again. We, we are going to kind of tag the tail end of his time with his guys. Uh, and I'm going to look at verse 16 here. He's... Now, in verse 15, he had prayed to the Father, don't take them out of the world, but to protect them from the evil one. And remember, we talked about the word one is in italics last week. And so you, you drop that off. And he says, don't take them out of the world, but protect them from evil. Keep them from evil. And, and, and so his prayer for them, also for us, 
is that we would not be taken out of the world. I mean, we don't get saved and all of a sudden, you know, we fall over dead and we show up in heaven. That's not what happens. But it's his desire. It's his design that we be protected, be kept from evil. Remember, we talked about the disciples prayer back in Matthew. And he says uh, to keep us from evil. And he prays that here for his men. Uh, and in verse 16, I think it's very interesting, and this is sort of the beginning of, of my rabbit trail. Uh, he says, they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And, I mean, we read that. I mean, I've been reading that for years as I go through the Gospel of John at different times, and, and uh, it just kind of flows right off my lips. And yet, what does that mean? What does it mean when he says, they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Uh, in John 15, in verse 19, he says, I chose you. He's talking to his guys. This is back before he started praying. And he says, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember, we've talked about Jesus knows that the heat that he has taken all of this time is going to shift from him onto his men. And a great deal of this upper room discourse has been preparing them, equipping them, causing them to take heed to these truths that he's giving them so that they would be able to handle it. Their faith wouldn't fail when, not if, but when it shifted onto them. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, they're not of the world. I'm not of the world. So as I look at this, it, it took me back to chapter 1 here in the Gospel of John in verse 10. Uh, I'm going to read this, and then I'll read it again. It says, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Now, there are three, primarily, three definitions that I see for the world in this passage that we're at in this morning. But they're all three mentioned in chapter 1, verse 10. The first definition is humanity. And we don't, don't need to go any further on the slides yet. But it's humanity. And the second de definition is creation, and the third is the world system that we live in. So if I read that again and I put and I insert those, he was in the world, he was in humanity, he stepped into hu humanity, God himself stepping into humanity, uh, and the world was made through him, the, the, the creation was made through him, and the world system didn't know him. These are different definitions. And when, when he says they're not of the world, he's not saying that they're not of this planet. He's not saying that they're not part of creation. Uh, he's talking about something entirely different. And I want to look at these definitions for a few minutes. The first, humanity, uh, is you could look at it as the sea, the great sea of humanity. And when Jesus is praying here in John 17, when he's talking about down through the ages, he's talking about humanity in that sense. Uh, these are the inhabitants of the world, the physical world, those whom God loves and those for whom Christ died. And so one definition of the world, we see it in John 3:16. for God so loved what? The world. And he's talking about humanity here. He's talking about people. He's not talking about for God so loved the planet. I mean, kind of new agey stuff if you want to get into the planet, which is weird. But also in John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it says, it, John writes later on, he says, And he himself is the propitiation, 
big Bible word, and yet it's a very important word. It means to absorb wrath. So he is the one who absorbed wrath, the wrath of God, for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world, for humanity. And so when we look at this definition of the world, we see that there is a definition where the Bible uses, it's the same Greek word, it's, it's the word cosmos. Uh, there's another word for the world that's it's anon. It's, it's hard to pronounce. That's in Hebrews chapter 1 and some other places. And what that means is the ages. And this is different. The word cosmos is, is talking about the world. Another definition, the second definition for the created world, or for the world, is the created world. And so when we look at the created world, it's what is around us. It's the creation itself. The creation itself groans for the redemption that we are promised. And, and, and the created world is the creation itself. In Acts chapter 17, Paul there on Mars Hill before, before the Areopagus, the, the, the big cheeses in Greece that, of that day, he says that God made the world and everything in it. it. He is the creator. And we see that in the beginning of the Gospel of John that uh, that. He, Jesus was present at creation, at the creation of the world. And so there's that definition of the word world as well. The third and the one that we're talking about this morning is the world system. Uh, in John chapter 10, verse 10, he, Jesus talking to his guy says, the thief doesn't come except to steal and to kill and destroy. In that context, he's talking about false teachers. But what is their motivation? They're operating out of the world, the world system, the evil that's around us. And the world system is intrinsically evil. And, and folks, we got to have our eyes open. We live in an evil world. And I'm not saying the planet's evil. I'm not saying that humanity is evil because that includes us. And yes, there is that aspect. And we could go down that road. I'm not going to right now. But this is the world system that is headed by Satan. It, it, it's based upon self. It's 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 driven by greed and it operates on pride. The fallen world that we live in, that's the world that Jesus is talking about. He said, I pulled you out of that. And now you're not of the world, nor am I of the world, the world system. This is the world that God warns us about. It's the one that the system, the philosophy that Christians do well to shun and to remain free of while serving as ambassadors and living within it. We're called to be in and yet not of the world. It's in, not, it's in and not of the planet. It's not in and out of, not of creation. It's in and not of this evil realm within which we live. Uh, I was doing a little bit of looking around yesterday, and I, I, I visited some old uh, doctrines from a, a false religion that I was part of when I grew up. And they don't believe that man is primarily evil, that man has a fallen nature. They believe that man has the ability to go either way. And, and I think, look around, open your eyes, see what this world is coming to, and Folks, if there was ever a time for this message to be timely, it's, it's now. It's here. It's in our church to be admonished, to stay away from all of that, to live separate from it. And that's what Jesus prays as we get into this third section. 
That's why I wanted to take some time and, and to really look at this. Uh, we're going to go to 1 John chapter 2, and I want to talk, again, I want to talk about worldliness for a while, for, uh, for us to be able to draw some things out of this and to know how seductive this can be. First uh, John chapter 2 and verse 15, John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a hard-hitting statement, and I'm not going to try to soften it. And this is God's word, and he's saying, you know what? If you are so connected, if your life is rooted in this world, if you're living for the world, if you're living for gain, if you're living for self, you're living in a prideful, godless way, you can't call yourself a Christian. You can't. Uh, he, he says, if, if you're living that way, the love of the Father's not in you. And Jesus in this prayer is talking about the love of the Father being in his people. And, and so verse 16, he says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And if you look at the condition of man going all the way back to the garden, he talks about three things here. Uh, if we look at, there's Eve in the garden and, and the serpent has come to deceive her and that she takes this fruit of the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and, and she takes it and she says that she saw that the tree was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh in action. She was enticed. She lusted for it. She saw that it was good for food. And she also saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. Uh, that's the, the lust of the eyes that John is talking about here. And then it says that it, and it, was it was a tree desirable to make one wise. That was the deception that she fell into, and that was the pride of life in operation. So we see these three things that John talks about in 1 John all the way back in Genesis, all the way back in the garden. Coming forward to the New Testament, Jesus inaugurating his ministry there at the, the Jordan River with John the Baptist, baptizing him, you know the story, and the, the Spirit of God descended upon him uh, as a dove, and, and the, the voice of the Father came, and then Jesus was driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. He was exposed, full-blown exposed to the things of this world system while he was out there. We see in Matthew 4 that Satan comes to him, he says, if you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. What was that appealing to Jesus on the level of? The lust of the flesh. He would have been hungry, hadn't eaten for 40 days. And then he says, worship me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. The lust of the eyes. He, he takes him up and he shows him the kingdoms of the world. He says, worship me and I'll give you all of this. And he appeals to him, not only in the lust of the flesh, but the lust of the eyes. And then it says that he took him up to the pinnacle of the temple and he said, throw yourself down. And, and, and he was, again, tempting him on the basis of the pride of life. There's nothing new under the sun, folks. And when we talk about worldliness, we talk about Satan's grasp of this world. I mean, he is the God of this world. And that is what the Bible says. And that 
we know that God's design is that we, being the redeemed, if we have given our lives to Christ, that he has plucked us out of that, given us a new nature, and said, now stay away from it as far as having that be a practice in your life. Because if you look like the world, what effect will you have on it? And, and that's what... But that's what God wants from his people. That's what Jesus is praying for here as he's lifting us up, as he's lifting up his men. He's saying, I've taken you out of the world. Stop acting like you live in it. In verse 17 in 1 John, he says, And the world is passing away, praise God, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever couple more passages uh, that are prominent. There are passages, parallel passages to this all over the New Testament. I, I brought up a list yesterday. I have a um, topical Bible, and, and I was like, oh, that's way, way more than I'm going to take on. <laughs> but, but a couple of prominent ones is Romans 12, 2. Where Romans 12, 1, he says, Paul says, therefore, by the mercies of God, I beseech you, I beg you, please. That's what that word means. Uh, to present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is your reasonable service, or your reasonable service of worship, depending on which translation you're looking at. And then in 12.2, he says, and do not be conformed to this, what? World. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He's not saying... Don't be conformed to this planet. He's not saying don't be conformed to humanity in general. He's saying do not be conformed to this evil system that this world runs on. And be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And know his will. When people sometimes come up and they ask me, well, what do you think God's will is for my life? Uh, often, tongue-in-cheek, I've said, I have enough trouble figuring out what his will is for my life, let alone yours. But the bottom line in that is, is to live a life that's separate. What his will is for all of our lives is to live separate from this world. In James chapter 4, James, Jesus' brother, uh, says this. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity? That means hostility. That you are hostile towards Christ. If you want to live according to the course of this world, it's enmity with God. Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Sometimes it grieves me when I see things in my own life, in my own heart. We're all, again, I, I don't want this to be a condemning message because we're all in process. We're all in that process of his sanctifying work in our lives. We all are on this road towards heaven. I mean, if you know Christ, if you know the Lord this morning, then, then as his, you are being transformed. You are being made holy. You are being sanctified. We'll talk about that as we go. And, and so you got to understand that we're all in process. I've said many times before, I'll say it again, don't try to figure out what that process is for the person sitting next to you. And I might add, especially if that's your spouse. <laughs> but understand what the good and acceptable will of God is for you, for me. 
And if the Lord puts his hand on an area, folks, I can't encourage you enough. Surrender it. Yield to him. Allow him to do the sanctifying work he wants to do because that's what it is. We have been sanctified through simple faith. It's a, it's a finished transaction, and yet there is, that's positionally we are sanctified. We are declared holy. That's what the word means. The Latin word is sanctus, and it's the Latin word for holy. But we are being sanctified because as he conforms us to the images, image of his son, as he causes us and he trains us to think more like Jesus, as he works in us and causes us to look a little bit more like him as we go, it's all important that we yield our lives as instruments of righteousness, as instruments, as clay for the potter. Uh, it's, it's just a beautiful thing that he's doing. This isn't something that should be burdensome or wearisome to us. If it is, I would invite you to check your heart because you may, your heart may be off. Mine gets off sometimes. We all go through things. But I, I want to say this as an encouragement, not to discourage anyone. Don't walk out of here thinking, I can never measure up. It's not about that. It's about responding to his love. Back to John 17. Verse 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The dynamic behind sanctification is truth. Uh, and, and when he says your word of truth, as, as I'm being sanctified, as I read, as I hear, as I understand, and as I apply his word to my life, I am being sanctified. I am being made holy. It's, that's the process I'm talking about. In verse 18, he says, as you sent me into the world, the world, I have also sent them into the world. So we're not insulated from it. When he says friendship with the world is hostility towards Christ, he's not talking about friendship with humanity. Of course we have friends that are in the world. Of course, and, and our light should shine before them and thereby glorify our Father in heaven. He's not talking about not being friends with, with the planet. I mean, yeah, kind of weird, you know, again, you get into, there's some real weird stuff out there about the planet. I mean, it's not Mother Earth, it's Father God. So he's not talking about that. And, and so he's saying, as you sent me into the world, he's, into this evil system that exists on this fallen planet, I have also sent them into the world. I, I've taken them out of it, now I'm sending them back into it. Uh, which is, again, it, it seems odd, but that's exactly what his design is for us. He pulls us out of the world as far as living according to the course of it. And then he says, guess what? There's work for you to do. I'm sending you back. But with a new nature. But with a spirit nature. And with a plan for your life that you go and you round up as many as you can because that world is going to die. It's the walking dead. Praise God that he has pulled us out of that and now wants us to be actually operating within it. That's what it is to be an ambassador for Christ. Verse 19, and for their sakes I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. He's just said what truth is. He says, your word is truth. So be sanctified by the truth. It, now, the, interesting, there, there's some interesting definitions that go along with being sanctified. It, it's talking about, yes, 
it means to equip people with the qualities of mind and heart, the character that is necessary to carry out the task that is before us. And that task is going back into the world. It's not just to be set apart. Uh, it, it, yes, it is that, but it's more. Hagiazo is the Greek word, and it, it, there's a broad definition for this. So what that does is it begs the question, folks, how do we live in but not of the world? The answer is simple. We choose. We have a will. We can choose. We choose to honor God by living a set-apart life, by living as somebody who knows that their home is not this world. You know, I, I can't encourage you enough because worldliness slips in. It slips into my life, and so I, it's got to be slipping into yours at different times. We, we respond sometimes as to we just forget and we react out of some worldly mindset that we adopted a long time ago. And as God, through the Holy Spirit, puts his hand on that, again, the secret, the trick to this, the, the, the effect that he's looking for, it's not really a trick, but, but the effect that he's looking for is that I yield. That's the answer to how you live in this corrupt, upside down, screwed up, messed up, dying world, violent world. It's by simply yielding ourselves to him. By saying, Lord, I want to live that life that is set apart. Not just set apart philosophically, but set apart in a deep understanding that I am operating as an agent of heaven itself. That's what he's doing with his guys. That's what he's doing with his church. That's why we won't depart from teaching the word of God here. That's why it's so dangerous to get out there and to start peddling the doctrines of men. Um, I, I love 2 Corinthians 2, uh, verse 17, where Paul says, we are not like the many. Many, to the most part, is what that means, who are peddling the word of God. Not here. Not now. Not ever. We hold high his word. And we want his word to have the effect that he wants it to have as truth, as the only real source for truth in our lives, that we would come and be washed by the water of the word, that our lives would be renewed, our souls would be renewed by the working of the Holy Spirit within, and that we can offer something back to the world that the world doesn't have. I'm going to read through verses 20 through 26 here, and then we'll go back and we'll tag some bases in it. He says, I don't pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. Verse 23, and I in them and you in me that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me from before the foundation of the world. 
O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and and these have known that you sent me. And I've declared to them your name, and will declare it, for the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. You know, we've talked about John 17 being sort of the pinnacle as far as prayer in the Bible, prayer in the New Testament goes. And this last passage or this last portion of this prayer is is really uh, sort of the capstone of it. It's where Jesus looks down, as I mentioned, he looks down through the ages. He says, I'm not praying for these alone. He's talking about his men. But for all of those who will come to believe. And he looks down. He's essentially, he is praying for you and I in this. And and so he says, I don't pray for these alone. In in verse 20, um, he prayed for his 11 disciples, but he also had the heart and the vision to pray beyond them. He prayed for those who would come to faith by the testimony of these disciples. He prayed for us. Having been taken out, set apart from the world. He says in verse 20, he says, uh, for those who will believe in me through their word. He is actually, he has full confidence. You know, in earthly terms, pardon me, in in earthly terms, you could look at Jesus's ministry Uh, I mean, yeah, sure, we're sitting here 2,000 years later, and we're looking at this, and we're going, yeah, this is our hero. This is He's the captain of our faith and all of those things. But in these guys' eyes, because of the crisis that was upon them, coming upon them very shortly now, uh, it would look like a complete failure. But Jesus prays this prayer with an absolute, complete confidence in his men and in us as being the ones who would carry this message forward. He says in verse 21, and this is where really the title of this message, Unity with Purpose, comes from. He says in verse 21, he has two great desires in this part of this prayer. He says that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. He's talking about unity. Why would that be so important? The last half of this verse is that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. Folks, this, this is not rocket science. Rocket science. This is very simply what Jesus is praying this for. He's saying, essentially, and I'll paraphrase, I'm leaving. I am physically going to not be available anymore. I will send my Holy Spirit. And I'm praying that you keep these men in the truth, that you keep them out of the world, and that as they are sent back into the world, that they would be unified, that they would be of one mind, of one heart, and that that would be the single most defining thing about them that the world doesn't have. And that people would be drawn to that, like, like moths to a light, that, that that unifying force of the Holy Spirit in their life, overcoming any obstacle that's in front of them, will set them apart in such a way that that light will shine brightly. And therefore, people will see the difference, and they themselves will come to believe. This is not empty unity. This isn't, you know, we all go sit around a campfire and sing Kumbaya. This is unity for the purpose of redemption of lost humans.
This is us being pulled out of the world, us being saved from the effect of the world, us being taken out of this system that the world operates on, which is corrupt and evil. And being seated in the heavenlies with Christ, positionally, that we could be effective in coming together and being unified in love for the purpose of advertising Christ to the world. That's what he's praying. That's why he's praying it. It's unity with purpose. It's unity with intention. Now, looking at the church, I'm not going to sit here and rail on it. She's his bride, and I don't like anybody wants to rail on my bride, so I'm not going to rail on his. However, I will state that one of the primary things that Satan does that this world will try to exert influence over us with is to divide us, to cause that unity to come apart, to cause us to get offended. And you know what? The single most thing that divides churches is offense. Satan is a master at it. He will cause us to become offended so quickly with one another. Because what can he do in that? He can divide us. And how does what, what's the effect of him dividing us? We're of no use in effectively radiating the, radiating the light of Christ to the world. If he's dividing us and we're biting and devouring one another, as it says in the New Testament, what good is our witness to the world of having something to offer that they don't have? It's blown. It's shot. Now, God's bigger than all of that, and there are times, I've seen times, where he has used division to actually accomplish his purposes. Look at what happened with Paul and Barnabas in the New Testament. Here, they had this falling out, and, you know, had the whole thing with John Mark and all that, uh, and, and, and they had this falling out. They separated from one another, and then it wasn't a polite separation. They were, they were pretty hot about it. And the ministry doubled. As a result, does that mean that the division was good? No, it doesn't. It means that God used it. And I've seen God use division, but that is never an excuse to divide with a brother or a sister in Christ. Folks, we have got to get this right. Why do you think Jesus has said over and over and over again in this, in this last, this farewell address to his men, love one another the way that I have loved you. He's saying the same thing here that he's praying to the Father in chapter 17. Let them be unified. Let unity be the thing that rules them because they need to be together on this. They need to be loving one another. That's the glue that binds us together, that sacrificial, that agape love, that heavenly love, not a worldly love, not a give me love. It's a what can I give you kind of love. It's other-centered it's a love that has a dynamic that's born in heaven. And it's love that comes from the Holy Spirit himself as we yield. As I say, Lord, I don't want to let this go down this road. I don't want to have my way in this. I want you to be lifted up. I want you to be seen in this situation. I want to see that your will is put out there. How does that happen? I die to self and I embrace his will. And, and really, folks, most of the time, I know what that is. And there are times where I think, well, you know, I, I want my way anyway. And that's when things get to be real messy. Just being transparent with you, those are the things that we all battle with.
Charles Spurgeon said this, we're to be faithful to truth, but we're not to be of a contentious spirit, separating ourselves from those who are living members of the one and indivisible body of Christ. To promote the unity of the church by creating new divisions is not wise. Cultivate at once, in other words, simultaneously, the love of the truth and the love of the brethren. Verse 22, And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. That they may be one as we are one. He's talking about unity with the Father that he shared. And he's saying, I'm glorified in this, that when, when you and I, when we're walking together, when we're one, you know, yes, we shine to the world. We have something the world doesn't have because there's no bigger mess out there than looking out at what the world is doing and going through and all of that. Talk about one big knee-jerk reaction after another. And as we're unified in Christ, as his Holy Spirit unites our hearts, we glorify him. We shine the light on him. We, we, we tell people, we advertise without even saying a word at times that, that we're different, that we have something you don't have, and we're happy to share the source of it with you. That's what he wants. Paul understood this. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, he says this, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God is glorified as his light shines in our hearts as we reflect that to a lost world. And we glorify God in the process. His glory is manifested in his presence in our lives and contributes to the unity in our lives. You see, it's kind of a, a, this full circle thing. As I am glorifying him, his presence is more manifest in my life. And as his presence is more manifest in my life, I'm going to love more. I'm going to love more perfectly. And therefore, I'm going to be glorifying him. And as I glorify him, his presence is manifest in my life. And do you understand what I'm saying? It, it, that's this oneness that we share with him. That's what he's talking about, that they may be one, that I'm in them, they're in me. It's a beautiful flow of the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in our hearts. And the outworking of that is that our lives are united together. Our lives are linked in Christ. And the world looks on and marvels when their eyes are open, when they're willing to look. That's another sermon. <laughs> Verse 23, uh, I and them and you and me that they may be 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 made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me. He says it again, that this unity is for the world to know that the Father sent the Son to accomplish the act of redemption for our sins, for our lives to be purchased on that cross. This is what one person said. He said, like sanctification, this oneness is simultaneously, simultaneously something already achieved, and something that needs perfecting. Again, I don't want anybody to get under condemnation because, wow, man, I got a long ways to go. You know what? Let's be honest. We all do. But his hand is on our lives. And this isn't a matter of walking out of here with a dark cloud over your head. It's a matter of walking out of here with a fresh commitment to be yielded to living a life that's set apart. 
to be yielded to his working in your heart and in mine. And to be yielded to the point where our lives are linked together and there is nothing that is going to tear us apart. To be committed towards that end, because I'll tell you what, churches split all the time. And God forbid that we should allow offense to come in and to get such a hold on us as a church that we should that we would allow things to happen to the point where it's bigger than our ability to reconcile any differences that we have and to move forward in unity because that's the only time that we have something to offer the world. And that the world may know that you've sent me, he states his purpose again. And one of the things that that I love here, um, it says, you've loved them as you've loved me. That's not a love that's depending on how I act. I want to say it again. That is not a love that's dependent upon me. It's because he is love. And if your life is hidden in Christ, you are loved. Maybe you think, well, I'm just a cranky old guy or, you know, I've got this issue or that. Let him work in those areas. But know that you're loved. You're accepted in the beloved. That your life is, has great value in his eyes. Jesus wouldn't have done this if it hadn't had great value. Understand that, that we are loved, that our lives are hidden in him, that we're accepted in him, and that his work in us is to unify us so that our light shines in the world around us. This is his purpose for us. It's not that we have to get our act together. I, I, I'm grieved. My heart is grieved when I talk to somebody and say, well, as soon as I get my act together, I'll go to church. It's like, you know what? That's probably going to be a really, really long time because I know that my act's not totally together. And I'm kind of the pastor here, but, you know, <laughs> it's important that we understand the context and that we understand the balance of these things. No, it's not a balance with sin. It's, a, it's understanding that, Yes, God is working in me. He's conforming me to the image of his son. And he loves me exactly where I am at today, warts and cracks and freckles and all, because of who he is, not who I am. Understand that. Own that. Because otherwise, we can get under condemnation. The enemy will get us under condemnation. We'll walk around with a dark cloud over our head and start feeling, oh, I'm just never going to be there. It's like, no, stop. Shut that off. Let his spirit minister to you where you're at. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you've given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. He says, Father, I desire. He's he's allowing us to see his desire. He longs for the consummation of all things. He's greatly desiring for his people to be gathered to him in heaven. He's praying this. Remember, he's an infinite being. He's in time at this point. He's about to escape the bounds of time once again because he operated outside of time prior to the incarnation. And when he goes to that cross and then he goes through the, the whole redemptive process for us, 
he will no longer be in time. He's praying this as though it's already come about as far as the cross goes. And he's looking forward to when we're united to him. Remember, he's talking about people down through the ages who would be his. And he's saying, I long for this. I long for the time when we're all together. He says, where I am. He wasn't yet in heaven, but he spoke as though he was already there. He's talking, when he talks about glory here, that's unspeakable glory. I mean, you look at, at glimpses of heaven in the Bible and what happens to men in, when they are taken there. I look in Isaiah 6, in the, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord lofty and exalted. The train of his robe was filling the temple and the smoke and the, the cherubim and all of that. And what happened to Isaiah? He was down. He was on his face. He was beholding the glory of God that he could not even explain adequately. You know, the same thing happens every time you see that. Uh, when you see John here, the same guy writing this, that you see him in the book of Revelation, and it says that, that when he beheld Jesus, that he went down. I fell at his feet as a dead man, it says. Why? Because of the glory of God. And, and so I, I look at in Revelation 19, I'll read this. This is a, just a wonderful passage about what Jesus is praying for here. I, I long for the time when we're together in, in, in glory. And he's in Revelation 19, verses 6 through 8, John, same guy, writing, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen, listen to this, is the righteous acts of the saints. That's us there. This is a picture of heaven. And this is a picture of the great multitude before the throne of God. I think about this. I look at this. I think about the song in the popular movie, you know, um, uh, Will I Dance in His Presence or To My Knees Will I Fall? Will I Sing Hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? Think about heaven. I mean, that's what Jesus is talking about. He's praying this. Yes, he's praying to the Father, but it's also for the benefit of his men who are there. Their gears are about to be stripped. They are about to go through some things that they never conceived of. They don't know that the cross is, that they're, they're literally standing in the shadow of it at this point. Because as Jesus wraps up this prayer, he crosses the, the Kidron Ravine, goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, and in chapter 18, he immediately is arrested. There's some other things that go on there that John doesn't touch on. But this is the last of his ministry uh, on earth as far as to his men and to the people and now praying to the Father. Yes, his ministry will continue as the most important aspect of it, of all of it, with the cross and then the resurrection and then the ascension. And yet these are the last words that he will utter to men uh, as far as his effective ministry on earth. Uh, yeah, he'd have some things to say to Pilate and to the other guys. Mostly he was silent, remember? It says the scripture would be fulfilled. 
But this is, as I mentioned, this is the pinnacle. This is the peak of his ministry. Verse 25, O righteous Father, he's worshiping now. O righteous Father, the world has not known you. Yeah, this evil system has not known you. The people that had that had blown him off, the people that were about to arrest him, the people that were about to think that they were getting the upper hand on him, they haven't known you. But I've known you. And these have known that you sent me. Is that true in your life this morning? Do you walk in the knowledge that the Father sent the Son to accomplish redemption of your soul? That he could give you life. That he could give you meaning. That he could give you the essence of what it's all about. And, and know that now the charge that you have is to carry that message to those who are lost. That's what unity is for. Verse 26, and I've declared to them your name, and I will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Unity to the end, unity to his last breath in this prayer. Love is what brings unity. Think about it. It's not about the world, the planet. It's not that definition of the world. It's, it's not about the sea of humanity that he's talking about. It's about the difference between walking in the light as he is in the light. Because when we do that, what does the Bible tell us? In, in us, there's no darkness at all. He says, simply walk in the light. This is a challenge for us. It's a challenge for the church. And I, I think it's a relevant challenge for today. This isn't just some 2,000-year-old message that we can go, okay, that was a nice message. What's, what's for lunch? But it's a relevant message for the church for now that we understand why it's mandatory that we remain unified, that our hearts remain connected in Christ. Our witness is blown without it. Our lives don't shine without the love that glues us together. It should be love above every other thing. That doesn't mean that at times we have to have we don't have hard conversations. It doesn't mean at times we that we don't ever get stressed about things that are coming upon us. It doesn't mean any of those things. But what it means is at the core, at the very core of our being, that there's a yieldedness to Christ, a yieldedness to the, the, the Holy Spirit of God who dwells within. If you're a believer this morning, he does want to have that place of the throne of your heart. The Bible tells us that the flesh sets itself against the spirit, and the flesh is part of that evil world. I mean, that's the world we were born into. That's the nature that we inherited, that carnal, that, that, that lost, that fallen nature. And the Bible says that, that the flesh sets itself against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and that there's a, a war that goes on inside of us. And the question becomes then, what am I going to yield to? It says, and when we look at that, the flesh has the position in my heart. That's, that's my default position prior to Christ. It was, it was flesh and that's it. It was all about me and living for myself and living for my desires and fulfilling my lust and, and all of that. And yet, when the Spirit of God comes in and he does this flip-flop, instead of me now being body, soul, and spirit, now I'm 
spirit, soul, body. I have this lower nature that I can allow to be on the throne of my heart to my own detriment and to those around me. Or I can yield to his work, yield to his spirit, and allow the spirit of God to be on my heart because the spirit brings power. Flesh has no power. We'll see in the garden that you know Jesus said, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. He comes back, and they're all snoozing. And he says, the spirit's willing, but the flesh is what? Weak. And your flesh, my flesh is weak. But when we yield to the Holy Spirit, when we yield to his power working within us, he is right there to strengthen us. He is right there to enable us. He is right there to pour out his love in our hearts that when we now in turn interact with others, that that's what's seen. It's about yielding. It's about being set apart. It's about being consecrated. It's about simply allowing him to fill you up. I pray for this church. I pray for us individually. I pray for us as a church all the time that we would be filled to the fullness of God, that the Holy Spirit would be poured out in our lives in such measure that there would just be something absolutely different. And I love the fact that this is a body that is in a state of peace. Yeah, the war is raging around us, but we actually love being together. We actually like hanging out together. We actually enjoy bonding friendships together. Don't let that be an end unto itself, because if that happens, then we are a social club, folks. But let God have his desired result, having pulled us out of this world and now filling us with his love, filling us with his unity as we come together, that he could send us back. And we're different. That's what carrying out the Great Commission is all about. That's what Jesus is praying for. This is not an empty prayer by any stretch. Of course, it's Jesus. It wouldn't be empty. But there is unity. But there's unity with a purpose. That's the message that I believe that God has for us this morning. Last thing here, he says that the love with which you've loved me may be in them. And I came across an interesting principle, and I've just been scratching my head since I read it because it is so true. Uh, and it's this, that genuine love must have an object outside of itself in order for it to be love. Think about it. I don't look in the mirror and say, oh, I love you. You know, that's kind of silly. Okay, maybe I, no, I don't. I, I, but I certainly look at my wife and say, I love you. There's an object outside of my love that, that has to be there in order for it to be love. Uh, and, and folks, that's his love for us. And the love he wants to plant in our hearts for one another. So when you're encountering other believers, when you're encountering people in the world, let them see that you have a love that is unlike any love that this world has to give because there's an object to that love. The object is Christ, shed abroad in our hearts and directed outward uh, because that's what his love does. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for John 17. What a glorious chapter this has been. In some ways, I feel like we've just scratched the surface of it. And yet, Lord, I know that you're accomplishing what you want to accomplish through it in the hearts, minds, and lives of your people. So I pray, Father, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us in such measure that we 
would be filled to the fullness of God, that we would spill Jesus on everybody that we come across, that they wouldn't see that ugly, nasty flesh that I know I have, and, and I trust that others do here know too, but, but that they would see you, that they would see the unity that you bring through the love that you have for us being shed abroad in our lives to a lost world. We pray for those around us, Lord, those in our sphere of influence, that that as we go out of here, that we would have a renewed commitment to live a set-apart life, to not live according to the course of this world. And, and, and Lord, if there's anybody in here that is that is that you've put your finger on, that you've, you've gently nudged and said, I want that. Lord, that, that whatever that thing is, that worldly aspect, that aspect of living with one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world, that that, that would be yielded to you. That, that, that we would just simply give ourselves afresh to you, that we would know that you take us and you accept us as we are, and that you're forming Christ in us, our only hope for glory. We thank you, Lord. We pray that you'd be glorified in our lives. We pray that you'd be glorified in our fellowship and that you would be supremely manifest as the one with whom we have to do. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the work of your Son. And thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.